volume two tends to be the most neglected of the three volumes of Capital, and Engels famously said that it doesn't contain much material for agitation. And so I'm curious as to what inspired you to teach this class on volume two, and why do you think it's important for understanding our present moment? I'm actually very fond of, of volume two in terms of many of the ideas that are present in it. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize it's a very difficult volume to get through, and so to the degree that I felt that I could maybe help people see some of the insights that come out of it, that uh, I would really like to do it. And since it is neglected, as you say, I thought it might rebalance the view of what Marx was about by you know, really taking volume two very seriously. Why do you think it is that volume two in particular is the most neglected? I think in, in many ways it has to do partly with its style. It's very, very flat. Uh, there's none of the joy that comes from reading volume one. There's no Shakespeare and, you know, and fetish and all the other wonderful things that go on in volume one. It also has a very weak narrative structure. Uh, whereas volume one, you kind of find yourself being caught up in the argument as it flows along, whereas volume two is a sort of series of episodes. The other problem is, I think, that its subject matter uh, is a bit, uh, at first sight, seems to be a bit out of the mainstream, apart from at the very end, where there are these materials on the reproduction schemas, which are, I think, frequently referred to. But I really enjoy uh, all the stuff about turnover time and acceleration and speed up and and uh, of course in volume two there's also materials about space so for anybody who's interested in the space-time dynamics of capitalism volume two is where you really find all the stuff that i think is illuminating that i think that is a, is a foreign terrain also i mean most economists for example don't take the sort of spatiality very seriously and so it takes a geographer like me to kind of say wow this is really great stuff we've got going here And my plan is, as it was with uh, Volume 1, to, to get you to read this book. <laughs> uh, I approach this uh, task with a certain amount of both excitement and trepidation. Excitement because I actually have found Volume 2, in my own work, quite an inspiration. And some of my best ideas have come out, out of thinking about Volume 2, so I actually find the content of Volume 2 you know, really interesting um, but, you ha on the other hand, it, it, it's, it's rather a boring book. Uh, you know, volume one is an interesting book, uh, and in some ways I think it's a literary masterpiece. This is far from being a literary masterpiece. You don't have uh, all of these figures running around that you do in volume one. There are no werewolves and vampires and turning, table turning and, and, and you know, fetishisms and, 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 and so on. The figures that sort of rampage across the text of Volume One, like uh, you know Shakespeare and Cervantes and and Balzac and and of course all of the Greek philosophers and so on, all of those literary allusions uh, sort of disappear from Volume Two into a rather flat, dull sort of technocratic expose, in which Marx doesn't really spend much time trying to explain to you what's the important part of a sentence and what is, what is not. 
or what is an important part of a chapter and what is not, and in some cases what is an important chapter and what is not. So the result is that it's actually a far more difficult book. It, it takes a lot of, uh, of, of, of work. The translator, I mean, he's kind of interesting what he had to say about it. He got, obviously got fed up having to translate it, so the translator's uh, note, uh, uh, which in here is uh, the translator's preface, uh, about the third thing, he says, as far as the style of writing is concerned, the difference is to be found between the later volumes and volume one, while in some part inevitably reflecting the preferences of the translators, are due to a far greater extent to differences in the original text. Volume one of Capital, which marks himself prepared for press and revised after its publication, is palpably presented to the public as a work of science that is also a work of world literature. Hence not only the splendid rhetoric of many well-known passages, but also the copious references to the works of classical antiquity and Renaissance Europe. Uh, volumes two and three follow much more in the wake of the less purple passages of volume one. Uh, so the first opening of volume two starts with actually anchoring itself in chapter three of volume one, which is the chapter where most people give up reading volume one, so this just gives you some idea of, of where you're going to be at. And, and then the guy says, their content is to a far greater extent technical, even dry. And volume two, above all, is renowned for the arid deserts between its oases. So uh, I think that's a little hard because it turns out that what he thinks are arid deserts, so in some cases I, I think it turned out to be rather lush pastures for thinking. So it's, uh, it's not an easy book to read. And, and for that reason you have to take very much more seriously the, the point he made in Volume One, that there is no royal road to science, uh, and if you sort of uh, fear it's uh, the, the, the exercise of climbing, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You also have to be prepared uh, to wait uh, to get actually the, the gems which do come out of it. Uh, the other thing that happens is that the politics disappears. Uh, you know, there's, there's no call to revolution in Volume 2. Uh, in fact, uh, reading Volume 2 you wonder where on earth the possibility of revolution exists. And there were some people who read it, Rosa Luxemburg for example, who complained bitterly that actually Volume 2 makes it seem as if capital can accumulate forever. And that therefore there is no point at which uh, the system is likely to collapse. I think that's not an, an accurate reading of this text, but, but <coughs> nevertheless there is, a, there is a kind of census to, to, to what happens uh, to the politics. And the third thing is that not only is there no literary meat in it, and not much political meat in it, in dire directly anyway, but it's an unfinished text. And as always happens with unfinished texts, you have bits and pieces which were written at different periods, and although most of this was written towards the end of Marx's life, in the 1870s, really twenty years after he had written the uh, Grundrisse and after he'd really worked on, on Capital. So this is one of his, his, his later w works. And, and there, it was edited by Engels, and of course, there, as always happens, there's an inevitable controversy as to whether Engels edited it right, or whether if you, you know, organized it in a different way it would look differently and all the rest of it, so you'll have to 
worry about that when you become an expert on, on the text. So this is, I think, it's an incomplete work, and so you also have to, not only do you have to actually import the political fire into the text, you also have to find ways to build upon a rather incomplete work. And this is a text which takes a lot of, I think, imagination on your part in terms of taking fragments, which are sometimes fragments which are, which are just sort of good ideas, if you want to call it that, and then run with them yourself. Uh, and there's almost no way in which you can come out of this with, if you like, a fixed understanding of, ah yes, this is what Marx is saying. It's more like, well, this is what Marx was beginning to say. Uh, how do we complete what he was beginning to say? How do we take what he was beginning to say and then actually build it into something which is, which is much broader and much, and much larger? When you approach it in that spirit, it becomes a very much, a very much more interesting text and a richer text. Uh, and as I, as I indicated at the very outset, I find this text extremely exciting when, when, you, when treated in that way. Uh, but the text itself, you know, I mean, it, it really is Marx at his most boring. I mean, those of you who remember Volume 1, you remember all those little passages where he start, starts to talk about, well, there's, you know, there's a bushel of corn and there's one coat and, and this is one shilling and that's one shilling and sixpence and this is something else. And boy, there's a lot of that in here. There's a lot of that in here. And many of the, many of the examples he works at interminably by adding up, you know, <coughs> shillings and pence and, 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 and so on, and then, and then trying to prove something that could have been proved very easily. And that's, if you like, uh, the, the desert character uh, of it. But once, once, once you realize that's going on, then you start to read it a little selectively and, and recognize that actually the, 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 the exciting stuff is in here. Like I say, it's been a, a gold mine uh, for, for me in terms of some of the ideas, in part because Volume 2 is a look at capitalism from a different perspective from Volume 1. Volume 1 is about production, and it's about the production of surplus value. Volume 2 is about circulation. Now immediately that says to you that's, that Volume 2 is much more emphatic about the process, about the movement, about the flows and the continuity. To be sure, you get some of that in Volume 1, no question about it. Capital is defined as a process, as value in motion. Here it's a commodity, here it's a production process, here it becomes a commodity again. So Marx has some of this in Volume 1, but the centre of it, of Volume 1, has this core, which is about the production surplus value which of course is about the capital-labour relation and all of the things that go on in terms of the capital-labour relation and all the rest of it. Volume 2 is not about that at all, it's about the process, it's about the flow, and it's a very exciting set of ideas that come out of that, but you get a completely different <coughs> perspective. For example, if you take the very first page of Volume 2, Marx says this, he says, okay, I'm going to look at the formula for the circuit of money capital, and, and that is, this is the circuit, which is, which is money 
which is going to buy a commodity and we're going to divide eventually between labour power and means of production, which is then taken into production and it then becomes a new commodity which embodies surplus value, which then becomes money once again plus the surplus value. So he says, okay, this is the, this is the system that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm going to look at. And he's going to dissect it in all of its fine detail, but he then says at the bottom of, 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 of the very first page, in order to grasp these forms in their pure state, always be careful when Marx uses the word pure state, he means I'm, he's going to actually sort of imagine it's a perfectly functioning capitalist society. In order to grasp these forms in their pure state, we must first of all abstract from all aspects that have nothing to do with the change and constitution of the forms as such. We shall therefore assume here both that commodities are sold at their values, and that the circumstances in which this takes place do not change. Now, what were the circumstances? Back in chapter 2 of volume 1, what he did was to outline a, a situation in which you had private property rights, you had juridical individuals exchanging with each other on a non-coercive basis in a situation where nobody was in a position to affect market prices. In other words, the circumstances are a perfectly functioning, a, a, a utopic, if, if you like, liberal, theoretical society. And, and so he's doing that. But he then adds another one. We shall also ignore any changes of value that may occur in the course of the cyclical process. We ignore any changes in value. What changes value in volume one? What's the key thing that changes value in volume one? Hmm? Can you remember? It's the productivity of labour technological and organisational change, right? That as technology changes and as organisational change occurs, so the value of commodities is likely to decline. He's actually going to write a whole book where technological change is assumed to be constant, is, is, is absent. Technology and organisational form is assumed constant. What is one of the, the main themes of Volume 1? It's about the theory of relative surplus value, which is about technological and organisational change, and the dynamics of it, where it comes from, and what its impacts are in the production of the Industrial Reserve Army, and all of those other things. In other words, the most fundamental aspect of Volume 1 of Capital, which is changes in the productivity of labour, they're here assumed not to exist. So why on earth write a text which ignores the foundational findings of Volume 1? Now this is sort of an interesting kind of, kind of question which you have to grapple with. And I think the answer lies in the idea that actually in Volume 1 there were a set of assumptions about how this flow occurred, which are hidden, and he wants to extract them. And as he extracts them, what he does is to bring 
a whole set of different considerations into view. Now the, the imagery I use here, typically, is to say, look, what we're doing here is, is generating different windows on the same process. Vo the Volume 1 window is the window of production, changing productivity, labour relations, labour-capital relations, all of those kinds of things, and the dynamics of the system that flows out of that, the general law of capital accumulation, the production of an industrial reserve army, the production of unemployment, all of those kinds of things. So Volume 1, you see all of that and you kind of say, wow, now we hold all of that constant and we look at this flow and say, what issues arise when we look at it from this perspective? We find all kinds of things suddenly become important. For example, in Volume 2, working class consumption suddenly becomes important. In Volume 1, eh, the value of labour power is the value of labour power, that's that. What's going on in the market becomes a problem. The continuity of this flow, which was presumed to be there in Volume 1, is rendered problematic in Volume 2. What happens if these transitions cannot take place? What kinds of barriers exist? And there's always a hint that these barriers can be the source of crises. So it's a very different perspective on the world. And I think what Marx is saying to us, and it, it, it's a bit like saying, you know, what is the truth of capitalism? Well, looked at from the standpoint of Volume 1, from one window you see one set of things, and from that perspective you see a certain set of truths. From this perspective you start to see another set of truths. Well, what is capital then? Well, it's the view from both of those windows combined, and in some ways Volume 3, I think, was meant to be an understanding of how Volume 2 and Volume 1 are actually in tension with each other. If everything's going fine in terms of what's going on in Volume 1, then things are going to get screwed up in Volume 2. And this is where something like working class consumption comes in. At the end of Volume 1, you'll remember, and the general law of capital accumulation, Marx talks about the idea, which is very popular, the increasing immiseration of the, of the proletariat. That what capital does, given the dynamics he's described, is to produce immense concentrations of wealth at one end of the social system, and, and, and massive um, arenas of poverty at the other end. That's what it tends to do. That's what he shows. What you see in Volume 2 is if that happens, you may not actually end up with a market. Now we live in a world where 70% of this economy we live in is driven by consumerism. Where was consumerism in Volume 1? Well, actually, Marx is very reluctant to allow consumerism into Volume 2. <laughs> He's very reluctant. But bit by bit it edges its way into the, into the picture. Towards the end of Volume 2, he's got a, 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 a discussion of the fact that the increasing immiseration of the proletariat 
is a problem on page 391. There's a footnote. Now, you know, I'm, I'm rather fond of looking at footnotes in Marx <laughs> because very often they give you the clue uh, to what on earth is going on. He says, contradiction in the capitalist mode of production. The workers are important for the market as buyers of commodities, but as sellers of their commodities, labour power, capitalist society has the tendency to restrict them to their minimum price. Further contradiction, the periods in which capitalist production exerts all its forces regularly show themselves to be periods of overproduction, because the limit to the application of the productive powers is not simply the production of value but also its realisation. However, the sale of commodities, the realisation of commodity capital and thus of surplus value as well, is restricted, not by the consumer needs of society in general, but by the consumer needs of society in which the great majority are always poor and must always remain poor. You'd have a hard time imagining that in Volume 1. Yet in Volume 2, we're suddenly seeing that this is becoming an, an important issue in the analysis. And when I say Marx is reluctant, what you see in Volume 2 is a commitment to a certain kind of scientific understanding of the world. And he follows wherever the analysis takes him. And I don't think he liked the idea that somehow or other working class consumption was a real problem and that a balanced development in a capitalist society should be one in which actually the workers uh, became important as consumers as well as producers. So what you start to see from Volume 2 are certain relationships which become very significant in the dynamics of capitalism, which you don't see in Volume 1. And secondly, the way in which you start to see those relationships coming about is also you know, very important for understanding certain aspects of capitalist history. I mean, for instance, I've mentioned that this is here looked at as a process and there are a number of things about this process that are very, very important. The first notion is its continuity. It has to continue. It has to keep going, step by step. The second point about it is that it has to accelerate. What you get in Volume 2 is an argument about increasing speed-up. Now, one of the things I came a bit famous for in the condition of postmodernity was talking about time-space compression as an idea of what's going on in globalization and all the rest of it. And, and actually, uh, what I did was to say this is one of the foundational features of a capitalist system, which is things move faster, spaces get collapsed. And so we go through a long history from sort of discovery of America onwards through a long history in, within capitalism of technological changes which are about speed-up and technological changes which are about reducing the friction of distance. I mean, just think of it. Uh, how fast things go. Well, all of that actually comes out of Volume 2 of Capital. 
I mean, when, when everybody was yakking on about, oh, we're in a new world, it's called postmodern, blah, 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 you know, and I was kind of going, well, yeah, well, okay, yeah, things are changing, and of course they've changed before. I mean, the coming of the railroads, and the coming of the telegraph, and the coming of the wireless, and the coming of the jet engine, and all those kinds of things, and containerization, we've been through a long history of a lot of this stuff. And I just basically said, well, there's nothing really new about this, except that we're in a new phase of time-space compression, but the theory of capital tells you, and the theory is in volume two, the theory tells you that time and space, as far as capital is concerned, and there's a lot of confusion about this by the way, which is to say, this is not necessarily how people experience it or see it, but what capital does. And how these innovations, for instance in stock trading, how fast things move. One of the big innovations in, um, in sheep rearing was it used to be the case that when you know, sheep had lambs then you had to wait for about two or three years before they could be eaten. And they were always eaten as mutton. And then Lord Bakewell came along and started to come up with breeding practices which allowed lambs to be eaten as lamb. Now when you go into a restaurant now, you don't get mutton, you get lamb. If you were in the 17th century you'd be eating mutton, you go read Dickens and, and it's mutton chops and it's, you know, everybody's eating mutton, even back in the 19th century. But the period between the birth of the lamb and its eating has, has been reduced from about three years to six months. You go look at some of the awful practices of pig farming in this country. It used to be that pigs had one litter a year, they now have three a year. They're hung in sacks and they're, they're literally piglet producing machines, they don't move, they're just teats with, you know, I mean, I, I mean it's astonishing, but they have three litters here. You can, e you can even, there's even a strategies for increasing uh, the growth of lobsters. I mean, if you have a lobster in a pot, then, then if you, I forget whether you take it from the cold water or put it in the warm water, or you start in the warm or you go to the cold, I've forgotten which way around it is, but, you know. So speed up becomes everything. And of course one of the major theses that comes out of, of, of volume two of Capital is the faster the moving, the higher the rate of, the faster the rate of turnover of capital, the more profit you make. If I'm in competition with you and I can turn over my capital faster than you, I make more profit than you. So the turnover time of capital becomes a crucial question. And you look at the history of innovations under capitalism, which are precisely, precisely about reducing turnover time. Now there's not much here about space, there's just a tiny little bit about space. Transport gets in here a little bit. Now, so I take that one and run with it all over the place. Say, so, well the same thing's happening to time is also happening to space. Marx doesn't pay much mind to it, there are a few fragments which you can insert, but the great thing about this is, when he inserts those fragments about the production of space, and there is some stuff in here about the production of space, when he inserts those fragments, they're inserted in such a way that I can see how that relates to the macro argument that he's making. In other words, it's, it's a shard, if you like, of, 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 of an idea which kind of says, well this system is working like this and this is how it's going and by the way there is something here which is kind of, and I say, oh well, yeah, okay, I'm going to expand that and talk much more about it. 
So this is why, this is why I find volume to exciting and interesting is because all of these kinds of questions tend, tend to get raised in ways which are not raised in volume one. And they do have political implications. But we have to actually then insert, if you like, the political implications. We have to find the politics. Marx, for some reason or other, and I think I know why, decided that he didn't want to make volume two a very political text. And I think he was a victim of, you know, what many of us in academia are a victim of, which is an, a certain ideology of what it means to be scientific. That he wanted to be respectable, for God's sake. I mean, why on earth would he want to do that? It didn't work anyway, you know, so, so, so why, why bother, you know? I mean, he still wouldn't have got tenure anywhere, even with volume two, in fact. You know, it, 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 he's got this kind of thing that somehow or other he wants to be really seriously scientific. And what he does is to have an image of this kind of science he's constructing. And one of the things I want to do in this session is to talk a little bit about that image and what it, what it does uh, to his own work. Because I think what's going on in Marx is the construction of a, a, a certain framing of his argument. For example, the first, the first page of Volume 1 of Capital, he's talking about, he's talking about uh, the commodity and all capitalist societies appear as a vast accumulation of commodities. And then he says a commodity is a use-value, and then he kind of says, but the study of use-values is, is the study of history. And we'll come across later some other comments in which he kind of says, the study of consumption, consumerism, doesn't belong inside of economics. And what this suggests is that he sees there is a distinctive field of thinking and theorizing which is called political economy. And that there is a distinction between political economy and history. Now this is, I think, one of the foundations and one of the, one of the conundrums that you face when reading Marx. There is all this work in the world of political economy, three volumes of capital, three volumes of theories of surplus value, most of the Grundrisse, and all the rest of it. You then get the historical studies, like the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte and class struggles in France and other kind of commentaries. There seems to be no relationship whatsoever between the two. You certainly won't find Marx writing about 1848 and the crisis of 1848 by referring to the falling rate of profit or the relative surplus value or the production of industrial reserve armies or any of that sort. Nothing of that sort at all. So the historical studies. Furthermore, the historical studies seem to be full of historical accidents, like you know, Louis Bonaparte uh, dressing up as the, the great you know, imperial imagery and all this sort of stuff, and assuming the mantle of his uncle and all this kind of stuff. And, Creating a appealing to a poetry of the past in order to create a present, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff. So this is going on in the historical studies. And, the, and, and you wonder what is the relationship and, between that and 
what, what seems to be in capital a law-like inevitability of the nature of the system. Now this leads people to suggest that actually there are two Marxes, and he was really kind of schizophrenic. One is the sort of scientific Marx, the political economist, where he's talking about deterministic laws, where human agency is kind of embedded in these law-like structures, and a voluntaristic world where accident and all the rest of it occurs, uh, which, which proceeds in a completely different kind of way. And, and there's a very interesting kind of question, therefore, is what's the relationship between the political economic theory and the history? Now, it's not as if the political economic theory is presented in an ahistorical manner, because Marx is very clear right throughout that capital is a historical construct. It came into being a certain kind of way. It developed certain rules of, develop of, of, of engagement. It developed certain laws of motion. And Marx is interested in those laws of motion, and what he's trying to do in the political economy is to show us what those laws of motion are. So, it's a historical, and at the same time he's also making an argument that there is a historical necessity to overthrow those laws of motion. So it's not as if the political economy is presented in an ahistorical way, no, it's laws of motion which have been constructed through human agency. But once the laws of motion are there, we are all subject to the rules of those laws of motion. Now this is not a strange idea, because <coughs> you'll find it in Adam Smith, of course. I mean, it was precisely Adam Smith's point about the hidden hand of the market, was that the dynamics of a society are not open to individual determination. That the market logic, as uh, Adam Smith argued, the market logic if it is institutionally framed in terms of private property rights and perf you know, perfectly functioning markets and all those kinds of things, if it's properly framed, will lead to a developmental process which will act to the benefit of all, particularly, of course, if the state, and, and actually Adam Smith did have a, a very strong role for the state, if the state is responsible in relationship to how those laws of motion produce wealth, and how the wealth then gets distributed. So, so Marx is, is taking that kind of position. But then there comes the difficulty of how to take an understanding of those laws of motion as you get them in capital. How to take all of those and bring them into a situation where you can use them to understand something like what happened in 1848, or what happened in the Paris Commune. Now, this is, is a, it seems to me is a crucial kind of question right now. I mean, we've gone through a disruption, a crisis, whatever you want to call it, in which capital accumulation ran into serious difficulties. Now, do we try to interpret that by going back to the 18th Brumaire? 
or do we try to interpret that by going to the falling rate of profit and the political economy? Which one do we go for? And if we're going to do it theoretically through the political economy, how do we deal with all of the contingencies which are obviously there? I mean, you know, yeah, regulators were asleep at the switch, no question about it. The regulators were captured, captured by those they were supposed to regulate, no question about it. The report that came out on the financial crisis spent a lot of time saying this didn't have to happen, there was nothing inevitable about this crisis we've been through, what was the, the, the problem arose not for any kind of deep-seated reason but because of failures of regulation and failures of the state apparatus and, and the invention of these crazy kinds of uh, derivative products and all the rest of it. So what we have to do if we want to do a kind of Marxian analysis of the present situation is to have, I think, a much better understanding of exactly what it is that Marx can tell us through the political economy and what we have to do for ourselves when we try to take that knowledge and project it into a situation of the sort that we've been through. And in order to do that, I think we have to have a clear understanding of why it was that Marx actually set up a method of inquiry in capital in the way he did. Once you have that understanding, you understand why it is that he wrote Volume 2 in the way he did, what it gives us that is tremendously significant in relationship to understanding of contemporary events, but also what it cannot give us. And Marx had no interest in saying it ever would give it to us. That is a key, if you like, to understanding a present crisis. Or understanding a particular dynamic. So what we've got then is a body of literature, the political economy of Marx, in which Volume 2 is a critical volume. And for me, and actually for some other, quite a number of people who study Marx very closely, Volume 2 is a key volume, but it's the least read volume, for all the reasons I've outlined. You know, people get into the desert and they kind of go, oh my God, give me some water, I want to get out of here. <laughs> so we're going to have to battle with that a bit. And one of the things I want to do is to try to leaven it up a little bit. Because, for example, Marx comes up with just categories in Volume 2. For instance, he comes up with a category of commodity capital. But in Volume 2 you would not know that actually merchants are engaging in the circulation of commodity capital. And that there's a specific set of agents who have specific tasks and specific... All of that is in Volume 3. So what I decided to do, as you see from the outline, is to say, all right, he starts out by so talking about the circulation of commodity capital as if it's just commodity capital. He doesn't tell us about the agents who are circulating it. But you hear all about them in Volume 3, and by the way, the Volume 3 stuff on, on merchants' capital is terrific. You'll have a good time with that. The stuff on finance capital is 
oh, awful. <laughs> You'll have a terrible time with that one. But I wanted, I wanted to say, look, by putting parts of volume two and volume three together, you can see how he's constructing the science, if you like, and how then he's actually interweaving in volume three the agents that are involved. And I just wanted to put them a little bit together so that you can see how that relationship might work. In June of 2008, we posted online your video lectures of Reading Marx's Capital, Volume 1. And since then, they've been viewed over a million times and have inspired capital reading groups all over the world. And I'm wondering what that has been like for you and what reflections you might have on that experience. It has been a fantastic experience. I mean, I, I didn't imagine that it would have had the impact that it's had. And it tells me something that actually there's a thirst for knowing about what it was that Marx had to say and, and, uh, and uh, to explore it. Uh, and I, I, it's just been in, incredibly exciting. There's a desperate concern for new ideas and new thinking. And there seems to be no place where it's really coming from. Um, and there is therefore a willingness now uh, to read Marx, and I hope to read Marx in an open kind of way, rather than a sort of a dogmatic uh, kind of way. And so to me it's been a very humbling experience, but also a very exciting experience to know that there are so many people out there who've uh, appreciated this. He doesn't uh, do an empirical study of the history of capitalism, uh, historical study. What he does, in effect, is to take all of the writings of all of the political economists from the 17th century onwards and make the assumption that they had struggled, uh, honestly in most cases, uh, to figure out how on earth this capitalist world was working and how it was all being organized. And even when they were being dishonest, they told you something. Uh, those of you who remember Marx's discussion of seniors last hour, uh, it told you something. It really did. So even when they were just being apologetic for class power, it told you something. So in a way what he does is to take that whole body of literature and dissect it, critique it, and look for its aporias, as we now like to call them, its contradictions and all the rest of it, and out of that construct an alternative political economy. And this alternative political economy is going to be scientific, it's going to be rigorous and scientific. But like any kind of, and at various points in, in Volume 1 of Capital, for example, he starts to talk about uh, how value is like gravity. And I think he aspires to build a sort of science which is of that sort. Um, the analogy I prefer to use would be fluid dynamics. And the laws of fluid dynamics are very well developed and they're very sophisticated. But in exactly the same way you can't get from the laws of fluid dynamics to forecast tomorrow's weather with 100% accuracy. So you can't get from the laws of motion of capital to forecast what the stock market's going to do tomorrow, let alone whether it's going to go into crisis. 
So, in, in social sciences, of course, the fact that sometimes it seems like you can't actually do that leads many people to dismiss Marx. This would be like people who do weather forecasting say the laws of fluid dynamics don't matter, they're irrelevant, why bother with them? Uh, because, uh, you know, we don't get 100% uh, predictability in terms of you know, climate change or anything else of that sort. So, Marx has that in mind. In doing it, he set up some general kind of propositions which became a guide to how he constructed capital. And I, some of these are laid out in the introduction uh, to the Grundrisse, which is also in the uh, introduction to the Critique of Political Economy. And I've just extracted some key elements of this, uh, which is from page 99 to 100 of uh, the Grundrisse, which you have should have copies of. Production, distribution, exchange and consumption form a regular syllogism. Now, he's talking about classical political economy here. He doesn't think they are a syllogism, he's saying classical political economy treats them as a regular syllogism. Production is the generality, distribution and exchange the particularity, and consumption the singularity in which the whole is joined together. Production is determined by the general natural laws, distribution by social accident, exchange stands between the two as formal social movement, and the concluding act, consumption, which is conceived not only as a terminal point but also as an end in itself, actually belongs outside of economics, except insofar as it reacts in turn upon the point of departure and initiates the whole process anew. Now, he then criticizes this, he says, while this syllogism is admittedly a coherence, it is, he says, a shallow one. And then there are several, several pages that go on in which he criticizes it step by step in order to reject it in favour of a dialectical conception of how production, distribution, exchange and consumption might be brought together within the totality of relations comprising a capitalist mode of production. And the conclusion we reach, he says, is that production, distribution, exchange and consumption form the members of a totality, distinctions within a unity. Mutual interaction takes place between the different moments. This is the case with every organic whole. Now, what this proposes is a structure of the following sort. It says the world of production is the world of generality. It is, he says, it's, and this is the world that is lawlike. Distribution. and exchange gives us the world of particularities. Which is accidental, conjunctural, Consumption is the world of singularity. It is unpredictable. 
unrepresentable in some ways. The totality of a society at any one time would be all of these elements working together. But what Marx is concerned with in Capital is to try to talk about, define the laws of motion. This is what he is after. He wants to find out the laws of motion of Capital. In order to do that, he has to bracket all of these other elements. Now, if you go back over Volume 1, you find that categories that get used in a very interesting way. Labour is vital in the world of production, but in the world of distribution, it's the wage rate. Money is crucial. Here, the profit rate. Land is crucial. But rent is a fact of distribution. So you can go on in this manner. Now, how much time did Marx spend in Volume 1 of Capital talking about what it was that affected the wage rate? Do you remember? He spent two pages. And he says the wage rate, the value of labour power, which is the equivalent of the wage, is dependent upon uh, I don't know, climate, the standard of living in a country, the degree of civilization in a country, the state of class struggle, all those kinds of things. Um, but then after he goes through and he lists and he lists and he lists for about a page and a half, and then he says, but in a given situation, the rate is known, and we fixed it. No more discussion. There's a whole f set of chapters on wages where you expect there's going to be an even deeper discussion of all of that, but none at all. So there's no discussion in Volume 1 of Capital of class struggle over wage rates, and the whole history of class struggle over wage rates. Not at all. Right? Same is true of the profit rate. Yeah, there's a rate of surplus value, but, you know. And land is a key input, but we certainly don't get any discussion of rent. We don't get any discussion of the rate of interest, which is a fact of distribution, so that profit, interest, all of these are facts of distribution. So, he, w when, I, when I mentioned to you at the outset, when we want to understand something in its pure state, purity to him means, this is the world I'm going to look at in its pure state, and I don't care about what's going on in the world of distribution. Yes, we know wages are there, and yes, we know there's going to be struggle about it, but I'm not going to import that into the theory, because it's a conjunctural thing. And it's an accidental thing. 
There's fights going on it all over the time, and so, is, so are rents, and, and, and so is the interest rate. So he doesn't want to he doesn't want to import these into the analysis at all. He wants to keep them out of the analysis. And we're going to see that in Volume 2. I mean, the reason he doesn't talk about merchant's capital in Volume 2, even though he's talking about commodity capital, is because you would have then to start to talk about how much the merchant capital took. Now, that's a very important issue for us right now. How much does Walmart take? Ikea, Gap, Benetton, etc., etc. I mean, merchant capital is a very important, powerful force. What's its class relation with production capital? Well, Ikea, Walmart, you know, dominate production. The producers are caught, in many instances, under the domination of merchant's capital. Right? I mean, these are very important issues for us in terms of understanding the contemporary dynamic. I mean, to what degree is the present crisis have something to do with the hegemony of merchant capital, vis-à-vis -vis production capital? I mean, who's, who, I mean how, how important is Walmart in organizing production? Ikea is another one, you know, you go out and, you know, Parts of India, and you find people slaving away, sort of making something or other that ends up in, 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 you know, over in Brooklyn there. These are power relations that exist conjuncturally. Things like Walmart and so on didn't exist 30, 40 years ago. There was a period when merchant capital was also terribly important, you know, Marshall Fields, uh, all the rest of it. So the relative powers of merchant, merchant capital and producer capital are constantly sort of in, you know, going like this. And the same is true of land rents. What's the relative power of landlords vis-à-vis -vis capital or merchants? What's the power of financiers vis-à-vis -vis producers? These are all con conjunctural things, and Marx says, I'm not going to deal with them. If you want to understand what's going on in your society at this time, you've got to go deal with them. I'm not dealing with them. I'm dealing with this world, this purified world of production, with these things sort of put to one side. Exchange. Another interesting kind of thing. What is the logic of exchange in Volume 1 of Capital? Many people you know, I have to take him past this, uh, kind of say to me about two or th you know, chapter 2 or 3, what happened to supply and demand? You know, and I kind of go, well, Marx's argument is that when demand and supply are in equilibrium, they cease to explain anything. I mean, the reason that, you know, shoes cost more than shirts has nothing to do with the fact that we desire shoes more than we desire shirts. It has to do with, you know, labor input and, you know, value input. So, when demand and supply are in equilibrium, they cease to explain anything. But who says supply and demand is in equilibrium? What kind of world is it that we're assuming when we say it's in equilibrium? What happens when there are inequalities? What happens when markets don't clear? What, you know, I mean, in other words, the supply and demand question becomes rather important to look at in an actual situation. And when you get, and this is interesting, when you get to the stuff on finance capital and money capital, the interest rate is determined by supply and demand. 
by nothing else. And that's because the interest rate is a relationship between capitalists. So when you get to the chapters on the interest rate, you're going to see, you're going to see that supply and demand suddenly becomes important. Which is why Marx didn't want to actually introduce it into the whole argument right now. Because he didn't want these conjunctural elements to enter in. So we have the market. So we have supply and demand. The other thing about the market is one of the other big assumptions of Volume 1 of Capital, which erupts every now and again, is that there is something which is guiding, and which is, which is forcing everybody into certain paths of action. And that something is called the coercive laws of competition. Now, this erupts at several points. For example, the struggle over the length of the working day. Marx at a certain point kind of says, well, capitalists are not free to decide that. They are in competition with each other. The coercive laws of competition force capitalists to extend the length of the working day. If I extend it and you don't, then you're in difficulty. You have to extend it if I extend it. If you extend it, I have to extend it. So the coercive laws of competition play a very important role in the chapter on the length of the working day, because that is what forces capitalists to all go to the lowest common denominator, forces them to a politics of what Marx calls après moi le déluge. You know, if we kill off everybody, we, that's what we have to do. Which is why the introduction of legal restraints puts a floor under that coercive laws of competition. The whole argument would not work unless you were living in a very competitive society. The other place where coercive laws of competition becomes crucial, there are several by the way in Volume 1, is in the theory of relative surplus value. What drives technological change? Organizational change. If I have a better technology than you, then it's the coercive laws of competition that force you to in the end adopt my technological and organizational form. And it is competition between entrepreneurs that forces them. So when it comes to the coercive laws of competition, this plays a very, very important role, and Marx has an interesting way of putting it in the Grundrisse. He kind of says, competition doesn't define the nature of capital. It is the enforcer of the laws of motion. Well, what happens if the enforcer goes to sleep? What happens if you've got monopoly power? And actually, there's a moment in Volume 1 of Capital where Marx talks in the general law of capital accumulation about the increasing centralization of capital, which means there's a tendency towards increasing monopolization of capital. How do the laws of, how do the coercive laws of competition exist in a society which, where monopoly power is becoming more and more significant? And this was, of course, one of the major points that was made by Baran and Sweezy in their theory of monopolistic competition back in the 1960s. 
US industry was becoming more and more monopolistic, the coercive laws of competition were not doing their work, the whole laws of motion of capital were changing, because the enforcer was no longer enforcing. And of course one of the things that happened with the neoliberal revolution was to try to actually increase the coercive laws of competition. And it's very interesting, one of the things the state apparatus often does is, is you know, anti-monopoly, antitrust legislation is about trying to maintain some notion of competition. And you can say, oh well it's a big joke, but it's not a big joke actually in terms of the dynamic of capital. If the coercive laws of competition are not working, then this whole system tends to go in a completely different dimension. Well this is, if you like, the conditions of, ex of exchange are dependent upon the existence of coercive laws of competition. And Marx says in Volume 1 of Capital, the coercive laws of competition do this, in the general law of capital accumulation the coercive laws of competition become important. Without the coercive laws of competition, the whole system that Marx sets up would not work. Now there's an interesting argument, which was very well made by Giovanni Righi in a piece written back in 1972. What he talks about is a historical movement between periods of monopolistic control and then highly competitive phases. This shift between competition to monopoly power and back again in the history of capitalism has played, I think, a very important role in the historical dynamic. Marx does not deal with that except in you know, a few spaces, places where he starts to talk about the laws of centralization of capital and the fact that competition always ends up as monopoly, he has those kinds of comments. But what he does is to try to analyze in a pure state the dynamics of a system in which it is assumed the coercive laws of competition are doing their work, it is assumed that demand and supply are always in equilibrium. And then we get to this curious notion about consumption being a singularity. Now singularity is a kind of difficult word and I, I, I'm not quite sure those of, who are experts on Spinoza and so on will probably find it back in there. And it's something that's made a lot of in uh, Hart and Negri for example. But the idea of a singularity is that it is something which is unpredictable, unrepresentable. It is a point in a mathematical function which is not predictable within the function. And it can erupt to infinity or it can go anywhere. I mean, when, when Marx says consumption is a singularity, I think what, he, what, what, what he's talking about is the way in which human wants, needs, desires, passions, whims, are unpredictable. I mean, why would people suddenly, you know, like green shirts as opposed to blue ones? So when Marx calls it a singularity, he's kind of saying this is something that we cannot grasp theoretically, we cannot even represent it properly. There is something there which is uncontrollable, which is outside of governance. Now, there's an interesting thing here because when he introduces this notion of consumption as a singularity, you immediately think of final consumption, i.e., what consumers are about. 
But there is something else here, which is one of the issues that comes up immediately after he's raised this question of consumption, is, well, there is productive consumption. And productive consumption is the consumption by the labourer of goods in the making of commodities which contain surplus value. So if this is a singularity, then that singularity actually also resides in the labour process. And I think Marx is very clear about how capital responds to these this notion of singularities. It is constantly trying to manipulate human wants, needs and desires, but it also has to mobilise, and Marx talks about this in Volume 1 of Capital, the animal spirits of the labourer. That is, you know, once, once you've got this notion of the consumption and productive consumption as a singularity, it means that there's something inherently uncontrollable about it. Which doesn't mean that it can't be used, but that it's always unstable. <coughs> and it's unstable in both of these arenas. Now, this, this instability in the labour process that became crucial to people like Mario Tronti at the end of the 1960s, when he started to point out, you know, you, you have this image of a labourer somehow or other under a whip, you know, being driven by a whip and who has no consciousness and who has no kind of feelings and nothing. That's not the case. The labourer is a singularity and that labourer can erupt at any moment. And this, if you like, gives fuel to the autonomista argument. So when you read somebody like John Holloway's book on you know, changing the world without taking power, what does he talk about? He talks about, well, at this kind of moment there's a possibility of eruption. It's, it's inherently uncontrollable. It always has a revolutionary moment, you know, Hart and Negri kind of say it's even revolutionary and this is a, you know, I guess students love this one, uh, to not get up in the morning. It's a very revolutionary act, you know, and you kind of go, oh, all the students go, oh, oh great, I could be revolutionary, just stay in bed all day. But this is a very serious kind of, kind of question, and the same thing occurs in the world of consumerism. That there's something uncontrollable. And Marx, that's why Marx, in a sense, is very reluctant to deal with consumerism. And there's, of course, there's a whole history of Marxists not dealing with consumerism at all and not wanting to deal with it. And part of that was, began to be changed when cultural studies came along with Stuart Hall and all those other people, and then eventually, of course, the trouble was that people started to take this issue of consumerism and singularity as if it bore no relationship to the production. Now, here's the point. If you want to understand the totality of a society at any given moment, you have to be prepared to work across all of these elements together. You have to look at the struggles that are going on, the conjunctural struggles that are going on between different factions of capital, but, and over the wage rate, over the profit rate, over the rate of interest, over the return of merchant capital, over land rents, over taxes and all the rest of it. You have to think of those, but you also have to think about the singularity and the possibility of eruptions. And I think that, again, within Marx's own theory, there is a space for understanding something like what's been happening in Egypt, that suddenly this thing blows. Totally unexpected. Nobody thought it would happen. 
And then all of a sudden it does. This is the singularity, if you like, erupting. And in Marx's theory, he clearly understands that, and that's what he saw happened in 1848. This is what he saw happened as Louis Bonaparte came in. In other words, you know, there is a way of understanding the relationship between the law-like and laws of motion which are being dispelled out up here, and this, when we start to look at society as a whole. But Marx's own project in Capital is to produce something which is simply the laws of motion without taking account of any of these other elements. Now whether he was right to do that or not, is you can debate about it, but you've got to understand that that is what he's doing. And the result of that is that you can learn certain things from Marx which you might not otherwise understand. That is, once you understand something about these laws of motion, it's terribly, terribly important to understand that all of these other elements are indeed to some degree contingent. But at the same time you don't imagine that society is determined by them. It's not at all. So there is a way, and I, I find it increasingly interesting to sort of think about a way to try to bridge the gap between the political economy and the history which is what I was trying to do in the Enigma of Capital, and what I tried to do in the Neoliberalism book, is to find some way to, to write out the, the, what, what I understood from the theory, but also to try to in, integrate it into an understanding of the dynamics of uh, the, 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 the crisis. Now, there is another level that Marx appeals to. Uh, bef just before this passage, he introduces another category, which is the universal. And this is about the me metabolic relation with nature. And this is a universal condition. The laws of motion of capital are historically constructed. These, he says, are universal. And I put in some of the arguments he makes in Volume 1 in these passages. Labour, as the creator of use values, as useful labour, is a condition of human existence which is independent of all forms of society. It is an eternal and natural necessity which mediates the metabolism between man and nature and therefore human life itself. And the labour process must be considered independently of any special, specific social formation because it is the universal condition for the metabolic interaction between man and nature, the everlasting nature-imposed condition of human existence. And therefore it is independent of every form of the, that, that existence, or rather it is common to all forms of society in which human beings live. Now, again, once you introduce the universal, which is this relation to nature, you then got another problem, which is, well, what's the relationship between this generality, these laws of motion, and the metabolic relation to nature? Clearly, the laws of motion, and we've already talked about this to some degree, are such as to redefine what a natural process is. In pig breeding, for example, they've already mentioned that. You know, they, they become a different kind of nature. They, you know, they, so that actually we're transforming nature, and there you get back to the idea that we change the world by changing the na nature, and we change ourselves by changing nature, and, and, and so, you know, 
So that there, is, there is another kind of level at which Marx works. What he does in Capital, again, how many times in Volume 1 does he actually mention this universal metabolic relation? Eh, maybe ten times. But he's going to look at the general laws of motion independent of that and independent of all the rest of it. So you have to understand that the whole of Capital is constructed at this, in this plane. And there comes a point where some of that isolate, trying to isolate this in its pure form, starts to run afoul of what he says, well, insofar as it feeds back and becomes part of the general laws of motion. And what you were going to encounter in Volume 2 are moments when that starts to happen and Marx tries to keep it out. Again and again he tries to keep it out. Now, again, I'm not going to make any judgment as to whether he was right to do that or wrong to do that, but one of the things you have to do in reading it is to understand why it is that at a certain point he is excluding certain things from the analysis in ways which do not allow us to take the analysis and project it into current circumstances so we can understand it perfectly well. But the benefit that came from this was this. Marx formulated his ideas about capital in the midst of a crisis of 1857-58. If he had included all these other elements in it, we wouldn't have got the general law of capital accumulation, the production of the reserve army, we would not have got the reproduction schemas which we get at the end of Volume 2, we would not have got many of the other insights we have. In other words, it allowed him to create an abstract understanding of a capitalist society outside of the specificities of 1857-58, outside of the specificities of what was going on in his own particular moment and his own particular time. And it is precisely, it is precisely for that reason that we still read Marx today. Because he created a theory of a pure capitalist mode of production and to the degree that we still live in a capitalist society, so these laws of motion can still be seen as operative and still are operative. When you don't have to look very far to see them. So the benefit that came from this was huge in terms of creating a, a level of understanding that was above the particularities of certain circumstances. The deficit is that it doesn't allow you to explain that circumstance in its particularities or its oddities. But that's what we have to do. So the point here is to kind of say, what, what we have to do is to understand what we can get from Marx and what we have to do. In other words, he's not giving us, I mean, when I say it's like the laws of fluid dynamics, he's not giving us laws where you just plug in and say, ah, here's what's going on. Not that at all. He's giving us an understanding of laws of motion, which are there. But we then have to build around those laws, understanding of laws of motion, all of this stuff about what's accidental and conjunctural, what's going on in this unpredictable kind of world, and, and how do we integrate it with the kind of the transformations of nature and the production of nature, how do we do all of that? In other words, that's the work we have to do. And 
this is why I think it's, it's so important to understand something about the nature of his method and the nature of his project. Within that project, certain rules apply. And let me go to the last part of the Grundrisse I want to mention in the paper. He says, production predominates not only over itself, in the antithetical definition of production, but over the other moments as well. So production dominates, but there's some weird way in which it dominates over itself. The process always returns to production to begin anew. That exchange and consumption cannot be predominant is self-evident. Likewise, distribution is distribution of products, while as distribution of the agents of production it is a moment of production. A definite production thus determines a definite consumption, distribution and exchange, as well as definite relations between these different moments. Admittedly, however, in its one-sided form, production is itself determined by other moments. Now, what the hell does this all mean? It's typical Marx kind of prose, where you, know, you don't know what is doing what, but actually it turns out it's not too difficult to unravel. Uh, provided you understand that there are two meanings of production in here. What is volume one about? It's about the production of what? Hmm? Surplus value. Surplus value is a social relation. It's not about material production, it's about the organization of material production to satisfy that social relation. So it's the production of surplus value which is significant. So when he says production I mean, predominates not only over itself in the antithetical definition of production, he's simply saying the production of surplus value dominates over the physical processes of production. Now a lot of people misread this as saying, well actually what Marx is saying is that material activity dominates over everything else. But this is not material activity that dominates, this is social activity that dominates over everything else. And it's kind of very weird because uh, if, you, if you read that as, well this is material production which is predominating over everything else, you then end up with all of those kind of materialist determinations that you know human beings are, you know, just sort of uh, products of their the material processes they're engaged in. Well, but this is not what he's talking about at all. And you know, and anybody who who looks who just thinks about what the main sweep of Volume One of Capital is, it's about the production of surplus value. That's what it's all about. And it's about the production of surplus value through the organization of material production processes so that surplus value is realized. And the social relation between capital and labor is preserved. Okay. So it's the production of surplus value and the reproduction of the capital labor relation which predominates over all else. And what I see him saying here is, you know, that's what dominates over all else. And but consistent with that, if that is the law which exists up here in production, then there are all forms, all manner of distributional forms that can exist which may be consistent with that. It's perfectly possible for you to have an authoritarian, dictatorial, neoliberal regime in Chile under Pinochet, coexisting in a world with a social democratic Scandinavian. It's perfectly possible. 
for completely different distribution arrangements to coexist in this world, provided that they do the one thing they've got to do, which is produce surplus value. Right? As long as they do that, then there's an immense variety of distributional arrangements that become possible. There's an immense variety of exchange relations, and you know, which can become possible. And the same thing pro applies to cons consumption. Yes, it's a singularity, but it's not an independent singularity floating out there in space. It's a singularity that is embedded in this requirement that surplus value be produced, no matter what. So when Marx talks about you know, production predominating, it's not material production. It's social production and social reproduction. Absolutely crucial. And one of the things I get really kind of annoyed at in, in discussions or when I read about you know, people, particularly the critics of Marx, kind of say, well, you know, he was a materialist and he just believed that material processes dictated everything. Untrue. Untrue. I mean, this, 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 this sentence doesn't make sense unless you take these two learns. And as soon as you put those in there, it, it makes a lot of sense. And he says, the uh, uh, last couple of sentences, a definite production thus determines, and, you know, a definite consumption, distribution and exchange as well as definite relations between these different moments. That is, the requirement that you produce surplus value is the, the fulcrum of the law of motion of capital. That's the requirement. And it is a class requirement which is a capital-labour relation, which is a historical construct, and, is, and, 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 and which implies, by the way, if you want to make a revolution, then that's, the revolu that's what you've got to revolutionise, which is the capital-labour relation and the class relation. So capital is a, is a historical construct, no question about it, but it's a historical construct which, once it is there, forms laws of motion to which we all have to conform, to which distribution, consumption, exchange, all have to conform to some degree or other, which doesn't mean that they all have to look the same. There can be different distributional arrangements, there can be different consumer regimes, infinite variety of ways in which exchange is set up. One of the things that's the, the genius of Marx is to set it up in such a way that, yeah, you can Imagine a world in which there's an infinite variety of all of this, all of these other moments which are unpredictable and particular. You can imagine that world, but you can also imagine it in such a way that the core laws of motion about the production of surplus value and the reproduction of surplus value and the reproduction of the class relationship between capital and labour is also foundational and fundamental. I think this is a terribly important way of thinking. But again, what Marx is doing in Capital is working on this. He's not working on all the rest of it. And I can't emphasise too much that you know, both, both critics and, and admirers of Marx I think don't quite appreciate the limitations he put upon himself. 
and what those limitations do to what we can understand from reading Marx. But also, what those limitations allow him to produce, which focus our attention on what he considered to be the most important aspect of what the nature of capital is about, which is of course the class relation. That's the central thing. So, in, in, in setting up volume two, what he does is to try to stay at this level. And there are many phases where he kind of says, well, I now have to get into something like uh, this question of turnover time. Um, I'm only going to examine it insofar as it has relevance for this, for, for the generality, for the laws of motion of capital. And I'm going to exclude everything else. And you'll find many passages where he does that. This is not relevant to us given our objective. And once you understand that, I think, like I say, you understand both the strengths and the limitations of Marx's own analysis. Well, I think I've been hammering on this point, so maybe I should stop here and uh, get some reactions to you. You're all kind of looking at me like, what? What? I mean, does this framework come as a bit of a surprise to you? I mean, you, you, does it seem okay to you? You think he should have done it differently? <laughs> I mean, I actually think, I think there are some problems in Marx. To begin with, I think the fact that he relied on, on the whole of corpus of political economic writing, in a way gives far too much authority to political economy, I think. His primary source of inspiration is the critique of the corpus of, of materials, which is brilliantly done, no question about it, but it gives a great deal of authority to classical political economy, including the idea of perfectly functioning markets, and competition as the, the enforcer of the, the laws of motion of capital. And I think there are some problems also with these distinctions, and what is interesting is as you go through, so you start to see these things start to break down a bit. I mean, I mentioned earlier, one of the things that begins to emerge in Volume 2 of Capital is that working class consumption becomes rather important. And Marx is honest enough to say, well, workers are given money. And as soon as they become possessors of money, they're no longer workers, they're simply buyers. And so the movement, movement there is from a situation where they're, they're in the capital-labor relation to where they're in a buyer-seller relation. And as we know, buyers, those who hold money, have a good deal of discretion as to what they do with it. So there's a big kind of question then is what happens when workers' discretion about what they're going to spend their money on enters into the, the picture. So and, and he's reluctant to bring this in here because it's allowing <coughs> consumption to sort of interfere with these laws of motion, but he can't keep it out. But I think his reluctance to uh, allow it in is, is, on the one hand, understandable given <coughs> the rules he set for himself. 
It seems to me these are the rules he set for, him, for himself. And if you should read, you should read actually the introduction to the Grundrisse and read it very carefully and not, and not read it, you know, I mean, you've got to be prepared to read in the way I was sort of saying, well, is production means surplus value, not... I mean, those are the rules he set himself in writing capital. And he stuck with them most of his life. And the rules had to be bent. They didn't kind of work at various points. I mean, I mentioned the reason that the whole stuff about interest and so on is such a muddle is because he can't find anything that de determines the rate of interest other than simply supply and demand. And he sort of has rather grumpy passages where he kind of says, well, you know, it seems that supply and demand is the only thing that works here. So I, you know, so it means he has to bring in this. So, you know, I'm caricaturing a bit, but I think there are some limitations that come from this that, which are unnecessary. My own sense is that, for instance, his failure in Volume 1 to talk very coherently about where, how the original money is, is assembled uh, and the role of the banking system in assembling that and the role of finance in, in assembling it, the failure to do that has, I think, had a very bad effect upon the whole history of Marxian political economy. It should have been much more upfront. And, uh, you know, some of us at least are prepared to say that right now, you know, that, that, that his exclusion of finance, capital and banking and of interest at the very, by, by saying it's a fact of distribution and it doesn't affect production. Come on, it's a bit hard to say that. To say that you can exclude consumerism from, uh, you know, in, in other words, there are, there are some, some limitations in here that, that I think are really uh, prob problematic. But on the other hand, I recognize that had he put all of this stuff in there, uh, we wouldn't have got the, the insights we have got from understanding these laws of motion. And those are very important. Yeah. I have some difficulty to understand exactly what that means that consumption has something to do with singularity. First of all, is that Marx saying that, or is that? Classic There's sometimes an ambiguity about that. My sense of it is that he's saying this is how classical political economy set it up. But there's nothing in anything that follows that says that classical political economy was wrong to set it up that way. In other words, he accepts that distribution is an exchange, are, are conjunctural, and he doesn't say anything about consumption except that he's then talking about productive consumption, which I think is very interesting because then it says there's a singularity in that which is very important to mobilize. And that's where you get back to notion of how do you mobilize the animal spirits of the worker because he's very clear. Without capital having the power to organize the animal spirits of the worker, then capital is not going to do very well in terms of the labor process. So my reading of it is, and I may be wrong about this, is that he actually carries over this notion of the singularity. The point about it saying it's a singularity is to say you never quite know. And in fact it becomes terribly important. In fact, capital relies on the fact that people are susceptible to fashion and to consumerisms and, and, and all the rest of it in order to keep, keep in motion. So in other words, the, the big question for them in the production process is how to mobilize the animal spirits the big prof prof problem for them in the world of 
you know, final consumerism is how to mobilize the consumer spirit. How do you, how do you get people to, to, to want to shop until they drop kind of thing, yeah? So. When you say um, put down consumption, do you mean productive consumption and creation of surplus value? Or I, mean, I, mean, I mean both. I mean final consumption. He, he basically says final consumption in here, but then he starts to talk about productive consumption. And then when you use um, particularity, singularity, and then you say accidental versus um, unpredictable, I don't get the distinction. Accidental is probably not the right word for it. I mean, I prefer, would prefer the word sort of conjunctural, uh, dependent upon, for example, class forces and the state of uh, class forces. But there could be accidental aspects in it of the sort that we were mentioning earlier, uh, which would be, say, uh, regulatory capture of uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission by those who are supposed to be regulated. And you could consider that not, not, not conjunctural so much as an accidental kind of you know, accident, an accident of history. Uh, in the same way that, to some degree, Marx would uh, look upon the rise of uh, Louis Bonaparte to power as an accident of history. I think there's a distinction being made here between, you know, class forces that can be looked at, like what's the, what, what's the relationship between the class power of merchant capital right now and finance capital and production capital, what, and, and landed capital, for example. What's, that can be looked at, or what's the power of workers vis-a-vis -vis capital in labor markets? So there's a conjunctural, conjunctural element of those class forces. But then there are accidental things that come into the distributional arrangements which are not sort of predictable from those class forces so easily. I think it's important that we, we think about it. And I have no clear answer to, 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 how, to, how, to how to better think about it. But what we have to do is to understand that he's... One of the reasons you don't find any big exposition in Marx's capital of, of consumer culture and uh, consumerism and so on is precisely he's relegated it to this zone uh, in this kind of way. One of the things he says in volume one of Capital in one of the introductions is, um, I can't use experimental method, therefore I have to use power of abstraction. And, and the power of abstraction is terribly important. So he sees this as being, if you like, the, the, the most powerful aspect of what he does. Now, I don't see him in this, in this introduction, which, by the way, there's some controversy over whether this introduction should have been in the Grundrisse anyway, because this introduction was actually the, the introduction of the critique of uh, political economy, which was written rather earlier. So whether it's part of the rest of the Grundrisse is another, another kind of kind of question. It just happens to get being put in there. But what he's outlining, I think, is levels of abstraction at which he's going to work. And, and, and I think these levels... But what's impressive to me is the way in which he kept to these in the, in, in the text. I mean, when, when, you, when you read volume two with this in mind, these, these phrases where he kind of says, I'm not going into this because this is not the pure theory. When he says at the very introduction, I'm going to deal only with the pure theory, therefore I'm going to eliminate all technological change. You know, wow, you know. Uh, he doesn't say I'm going, to listen, I'm going to eliminate all distributional arrangements, but then he said that in volume one. He kind of said, well, the surplus gets divided amongst everybody, but I'm going to pretend the distribution doesn't matter. 
So, so he's constantly shoving aside the kind of distributional kind of questions. And it's just very interesting. He sets up these notions, well, there's money capital, there's production capital, and there's, and there's commodity capital in volume two. But he doesn't say there is a class relation between the financiers, the producers, and the merchants. He doesn't want to say that. So that all comes in volume three, which is why I want to put the volume three stuff in so it parallels this kind of, and it's interesting to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it the singularity in the labor process that basically makes the revolution possible in sort of capital labor relations? Is that sort of how that? Well, some people, some people argue that, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what uh, Tronti and others argued, yes. And that's what uh, people like Holloway argue, yeah. But it doesn't have to, that there's other there's other ways to look at or that doesn't have to Well, no, I mean, to the degree that the class relation between capital and labor is a focus of struggle over, the, for example, the wage rate, and there's a class struggle over the wage rate, or a class struggle over the length of the working day, which the struggles in the marketplace as well, which also go on. I mean, I actually think, uh, you know, one of the things to look at here again, and this kind of is important in, in volume two, is where are the sites of struggle and what, were the, what are the struggles over? You know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, but what emerges is the, 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 the production is certainly a, a key point of struggle. Uh, no, no, no question about that. Whether it's the only point of struggle, I would argue personally, no, it's not the only point of struggle. There are many points of struggle. So maybe we should stop uh, here and uh, next week then we're going to do the first three chapters in the light of all of this. I don't know whether there's a convenient bar around the corner somewhere where we can have a drink.